0: Well, hello again. This is Buck Banning speaking. Welcome to another episode of Zero Hour. I know you were expecting probably to hear Crazy Captain Steven, but he was a little busy this week and didn't get a chance to do this intro, so I'm doing it for him. But I will tell you I'm excited because of all the intros of all the Zero Hours, this is probably the one I'd like to do the most. The two actors featured in this episode... uh, well, these episodes, these five episodes, of course, are two of my favorite actors, and two actors that you definitely probably know if you've watched films or television in the last 40 years. Uh, The first one is George Kennedy. And George Kennedy is not one of those names that immediately springs off of people's tongues, but he was in some amazing films and television, over 200 roles in film and television that he was in. Probably For folks to easily get a visual image of him, he is probably best remembered for being in a lot of the disaster movies, including the four airplane films, and he was also in Earthquake, uh, as well as he was in the Naked Gun series with uh, Leslie Nielsen. So, uh, I think you might get a visual on me of the blonde hair and uh, a little heavy set, and was in quite a few pictures. It's, It's amazing, actually, what he was in. His first picture was Spartacus with, of course, Kirk Douglas, and then he followed that up by being in... He was in three or four pictures with um john wayne actually he was his first one was in harm's way and then he was in the sons of katie elder i believe as well as one of his 1970 something police um ones i'm trying to remember if it it might have been Brannigan. anyway so yes he was in at least three john wayne films and at least three Jimmy Stewart films. So uh, the Jimmy Stewart films were Flight of the Phoenix, and in 1965, and I believe in 65 as well, Shenandoah. And then in 1977, uh, they crossed paths in one of George Kennedy's airport movies, Airport 77, featured uh, Jimmy Stewart. In one of his last roles, it might have been his last motion picture role as a live actor. Um, He did some voiceover work in a couple cartoons, I believe, uh, that were films. But um, anyway, so actually George Kennedy is one of your very best go-to actors if you're playing uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon because, like Kevin Bacon, and what makes Kevin Bacon work so well for playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon is that he was in such a broad variety of films and with large, famous casts. So because Kevin Bacon was in um, A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise and with um, uh, Demi Moore and just a lot of, uh, lot of other folks, that that makes him a good actor to use for the fact he was in that film, for the fact that he was in... Um, animal house with a number of of uh great actors for that time and he was in roles over time and so you can connect him up to lots of other actors in different ways in the same way george kennedy is similar in that you can connect him up to famous actors all over the place um he was in a film with paul newman uh cool hand luke and he actually won the uh Best Supporting Actor, Oscar, and the Golden Globe for that uh, film, which is amazing. Uh, so, if you're ever playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, uh, to get to Kevin Bacon to George Kennedy and then connect to all the people George Kennedy could connect to, the easiest connection I can think of is, let's see, Kevin Bacon was in A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise was in... Color of Money with Paul Newman. Paul Newman was in Cool Hand Luke with George Kennedy. There you're at three links, then you got three more to make, and so you can connect up easily to John Wayne, to to Jimmy Stewart, and then all the folks they connect to, so uh, pretty much if you use that, you'll connect to any old school actor within six degrees of Kevin Bacon by using George Kennedy as your shortcut. (laughs) Anyway, um, the other actor in this is Robert Reed Robert Reed of course is most famous for playing uh, Mr. Brady in the Brady Bunch and uh, he played Mike Brady from 1969 until 1974 I think and I didn't realize this but Right after that, in 76, he earned an Emmy Award for a performance he gave in, I can't remember, the. it was one of the uh, uh, medical series, and he did a two-part story with him in there called The Fourth Sex, and um, won an Emmy for his performance there, which I thought he would feel really good about because I think he was afraid he'd be typecast after Brady Bunch. And he really wasn't. He did a lot of things afterwards. He was probably in more miniseries than anybody else I can think of. He was in Roots. He was in Rich Man, Poor Man. Um, he was in just a lot of the different mini-series that were on throughout the uh, 70s and 80s. He's also... where well, people forget that he was in uh, that I would love to see. He was actually in more episodes of this series, that I'm going to mention, than in Brady Bunch. Brady Bunch, he was in 115 episodes, and in The Defenders, he was in, I believe, 132 episodes, and ran from 1961 until 1966, maybe? Something like that. And he was in that, his co-star was E.G. Marshall. And E.G. Marshall, we get a chance to hear uh, throughout the course of this summer, introducing the episodes of uh, Sears, not Sears, this is uh, that's, that's from tomorrow night. Uh, he introduces the episodes of CBS uh, Mystery the- Radio Mystery Theater uh, that we have every Saturday night. So uh, it's neat that you hear both of the main actors from The Defenders this summer on two different uh, series. Uh, And then I thought I would talk a little bit about this series, um, Zero Hour. It's it's a unique concept and a wonderful idea. I mean, I was thinking before, if you were to ask me to come up with series ideas, I really think uh, after I got into old-time radio, I had not heard about any of these series, and you were to say, If you were going to bring him back, how would you do it, you know? And I probably would do this exact same thing that Elliot Lewis did. First, Elliot Lewis brings us this series, which is presenting one continuous story in five parts over five nights. And it's just a chance to really get more in-depth into the characters and into the storyline. But its fatal flaw is that anybody who missed a day or two would be kind of lost. They did a good job at doing a recap at the beginning of each episode, but I just think it was just too hard to keep an audience coming back five nights a week on for a radio show. So it just didn't make it, uh, though I think it's a great uh, experiment. And then when he comes back five years later and brings us um, the Sears Radio Theater that we bring to you tomorrow night then he did the second idea I wanted to come up with which is have a, something on five nights a week but have one night be focused each night focused on a different subject to make it kind of a um, kind of uh, kind of like your own network you're creating because you've got Uh, Monday nights, of course, have Western Night, and then they have Comedy Night on Tuesday, and Wednesday they have um, Suspense Night, and then Thursday is Love Night with romance sort of stories, and then Friday is Adventure Night. Uh, I would have probably come at it the same way and done the same thing, but that one fails as well, and I think the reason that one fails is because Each night, your market is you're shooting for a different audience. You're not continuing to keep the same audience. Uh, How many people are going to listen to a Western and then be interested in a comedy? You know? And then be interested in a suspense episode. I would think the same audience listens to suspense and maybe the adventure episode, but do they want to hear the love or romance episode in between? Probably not. Had they given the show a listen throughout the whole week, I think you would see that even the romance episodes, at least the ones they played, the first one they played, wasn't really that much into romance, it was more of a story of love and caring and um, that sort of thing that I think, and it had some suspense moments in it, so I think it could tie in, but I think audiences didn't know when to tune in and when not to tune in, and I think he... They'd listen one night, and then they'd listen again, and they'd be maybe turned off by what they heard the next night, and so he was just killing his own audience in a way. And, of course, the one that succeeded the best of the radio revivals, which all of these were, and this is kind of a radio revival summer we're having because I'm featuring all the revival shows, are the, biggest, uh, the biggest revival shows that were put on during the 70s. Anyway, um... The, the most successful one was CBS radio mystery theater. And the reason I think that was so successful is because it said such a simple format. It was simply let's present suspense type episodes seven nights a week. Anytime you tune in, you're going to hear a suspense uh, presentation. And so folks would get used to tuning in and hearing these suspenseful episodes. And, uh, kept doing it and so it became popular enough to keep running for years and years and years and as they went through it, they first built an audience which was smart and then they started to diversify out a little bit more with some of the science fiction episodes. I believe they had science fiction episodes and I know that they had uh, classic um, written stories, a ground post stories and so forth. Uh, we'll be bringing you some of those this summer as well. That series, of course, we said comes to you every uh, Saturday night. So, anyway, I hope you're going to enjoy Zero Hour Today, uh, introduced by Rod Serling, who unfortunately died within a few years after this, and uh, with Robert Reed, who unfortunately passed away um, in 1992, of colon cancer but it was uh, a lot of people think he died from AIDS but he didn't die from AIDS he died from colon cancer but it was exacerbated by him being HIV positive he wasn't um, he didn't have full-blown AIDS when he died but the coroner uh, related it to saying saying that uh, it exacerbated or made worse the colon cancer that he had Anyway, so, so it's unfortunate we lost him when we did. Uh, the good side is uh, George Kennedy, we still have. He's still acting today, I believe. Uh, his last thing that I know of was 2011. He's 89 years old, and uh, we've gotten his earliest performance. I think he was born in 1925, and his earliest performance, I think, was 1927. So he was a... A child actor until 1930-something, and then he didn't appear again until 1955, I think. uh, But really started appearing again in about 61, started doing the movies and everything. Uh, But a very, very successful career. very lucky guy to have worked with so many great actors, including Robert Reed, for this performance in Zero Hour. Enjoy.
1: The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents.
2: I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to the Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Charles Larson's Inside Story of Television Murder Someone's Death. Starring George Kennedy, Joyce Boulefont, and Robert Reed in Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. This week, our story revolves around the make-believe world of television. We'll meet Nils Frederick Blixen, a middle-aged man married to his craft, producing television shows. He's preparing a new detective series called at Bay, in which his star will have exactly one half hour each week to solve a fictional crime. Nils Frederick Blixen, a veteran of the industry, is breaking in a new casting director, Joanna Redfern. Young, bright, aggressive. A woman more prideful of her liberated status than of her shocking red hair. Their problem is to cast the role of co-star in the upcoming series. Strictly a matter of choice. It would have been easy if it hadn't been for one unexpected, intangible fact. Someone's death. The fact is, it was murder.
3: Our story, Someone's Death, begins after this word. He lay on his stomach under the oak like a spy, with his hands shading his eyes and a reversed blue baseball cap spread over the back of his neck. He was black, tall, 6'5 in his stocking feet, a former basketball player. Several woodworms had been caught in the blood that matted the base of his skull. He'd been shot at close range, the bullet burrowing upward through the back of his head. He was quite thoroughly, vengefully murdered. (laughs) At the precise early morning hour that a young boy and girl in the hills along Mulholland Drive above Hollywood stumbled onto the body, I was in a projection room at the studio. I was still at the studio, in my office, chairing an unofficial production meeting as the sun dipped into the smog and below the Los Angeles horizon. It was the 22nd of May. On June the 4th, come hell, high water, death, panic, or war we had to be in production on the first of 22-hour episodes of a new TV series which I had originated and would produce called Stag at Bay, a detective series which is supposed to make me some kind of authority on murder. The meeting was a replay of a thousand, just like
4: it. You know, we've got to find a gimmick to hang the PR campaign on. Right
5: now, that's less important than finding the right girl.
3: Across the desk from me was Leonard Ellis, a born conciliator. In his youth, he'd wanted to be a baseball umpire, but failed due to his slight deafness, though he often said it was merely compensation for 20-20 vision. He claimed to hear better after a nip, so at 61 he had become an alert quasi-alcoholic. Nevertheless, Leonard Ellis was the best unit publicist any series could have. Joanna Redfern, the casting director, sat near him, upright in and straight chair. Tall, 23, a recent graduate of Bennington, she wore her red hair short because everybody else wore it long. She was uptight, tapping the arms of her chair, uncrossing her trousered legs. When she finally got to her feet, it was in sections like a deck chair unfolding. Well,
5: someday, some terribly courageous TV producer is going to thumb his nose at the computer, cast the best actor or actress in his series instead of the safest, and make a hundred million dollars. And how in the name of reason are those pious, rude New York network research freaks going to squeeze out of that one?
4: Well, I'm sure every producer wants to cast the best actor or actress in every role. Isn't that so, Niels Frederick?
3: I'm producing this series, and I'll make the decisions. I couldn't care less less about what they want upstairs. And so you'll get it straight, Miss Redfern. I'm not going to fill an important running lead with a bad Mexican-American actress just because Justicia or Nosotras or the rest of the pressure groups think I ought to.
5: The part calls for a Mexican-American girl. It would be absurd not to get...
3: Fine. You bring me one who can cut the mustard and I'll sign her.
5: I have brought you several, but all you're after is a pretty face.
3: They weren't right, any of them.
5: You know what I think I better do is tell the front office that this isn't working out, that it isn't fair to the studio to saddle you with a casting director you don't know and you don't have confidence in.
3: Sit down.
5: No, I'd rather not.
4: Uh, Who's for coffee? You, Nils Frederick?
5: All the same, Mr. Blixen. I wish you luck. I hope Stag at Bay knocks everybody right on their backside. His backside? Of course.
3: Is this your first series, Miss Redford? Yes. It's my fifth. Uh, Joanna, isn't it?
5: It's Joanna, but everybody calls me Red.
4: Yours is black, I
3: believe, Nell Frederick. Uh,
4: Red, are you uh,
3: cream?
5: No sugar, dash of cream. Mm
3: -hmm. While Ellis translated the coffee order to my secretary, Mary, the poor woman should have been gone hours ago, Red sat on her tailbone with the player's directory and searched for the actress who wouldn't compromise us too much with the powers upstairs. I could hear Ellis on the extension talking to his granddaughter.
4: Hello, honey? Yeah, yeah. This is Grandpa. I'm, I'm going to be late again for dinner. Did, uh, did you call me? Donnie Osmond? I thought you were in love with David Cassidy. Issue of which, which magazine? Oh, oh, whoa. Oh. Anything with Donnie's picture on the cover. Yeah, I will find one. I I won't be too late. Bye bye, sweet.
5: Donnie's woman?
4: Donnie needs her.
5: She assured me last spring that Bobby Sherman needed her.
4: <laughs> well, that that's when she was a kid of thirteen.
3: But now, now she knows what love is. Red, where did you meet Ellis' granddaughter?
5: Oh, I've known Heidi for years. We're neighbors.
3: You're kidding. No one in Hollywood has neighbors.
4: Oh, Red and I live in the same... Uh, <clears throat> what do you call it, Red? Uh, foreplex?
5: Over under Long Prey. It's a nice area. I love it.
4: Yeah, they still dig their heels in about blacks, so. though. In this enlightened day and age. Yeah, you bet. In this day and age... Uh,
3: <coughs> I'm sorry, Red. Why? Did I walk into something? Well, what happened at the neighborly fourplex?
5: Nothing happened.
3: Yeah, right. Nothing, nothing. That, uh, 10% a teapot. Come on, tell me. Might springboard a script.
5: No script. Just I had a black friend somebody objected.
3: Uh, Anonymous letters, you know. So what did you do about it, Ruth?
5: Kissed him goodnight on the lawn after that. Didn't want anybody to miss anything.
3: (laughs) That's a good girl.
5: Oh, here she is. Now just look at this picture if you want to see one sweet actress. Now, I I know she won't do. You're after a beauty. This girl looks like ten cents worth of catnip.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Got an interesting face.
5: You mean ugly. True. You know Clifford Odette's Country Girl?
3: Of course I know it. Do you think I'm illiterate?
5: Well, how do you think the woman ought to be played? Mother Earth. Okay. I saw Isabel Chavez do country girl in Spanish in East L.A. a month ago, and I thought I'd die. This was a woman you could believe anything about. When the husband tells the director she was Miss Mexico, you believe. When he says she tried suicide, you believe that. You believe! Oh, not...
3: I watched her, Joanna Redfern, Miss Clumsy of the Year, knock over a seven-foot-tall philodendron plant. While Ellis and I helped her prop it up again, she was tossing the plant's upper tendrils over the automatic fire extinguisher pipes in the ceiling, which caused her to split her shirt and dislodge an abstract of some English soccer players when she fell in exhaustion against the wall. Yet, like the young Hepburn, she was so secure in her ungainliness that it projected itself as a kind of high-born grace. I felt I'd never been stuck with a more aggravating girl in my life.
5: Oh, I did all of that in one take.
3: Will you sit down, Red? Forget the plant. Just sit down. I- I'm s- sorry. I shouldn't have shot
5: You certainly shouldn't have.
3: Ellis, see if Mary fell in the coffee pot out there and drowned, will you? Yeah. <clears throat> Mary... Oh, Oh. oh. Oh,
6: dear. Oh, sorry. I
4: didn't know you were right in the door about to knock. Uh, Here, here. Let me help you.
3: Did I I spill the coffee? Oh, I'm
6: sorry. So
3: sloppy. What a day. Put it down, Mary. Don't mop it up. Just put it down.
6: You uh, did say just a little milk.
4: Uh, Two black, cream in one, and uh, a little snort in mine. (laughs)
5: Um, Joanna. Hmm? Oh, oh, me, yeah? I get so used to being called red. Yeah,
3: uh, what is it, Mary?
6: Well, I hate to interrupt, but I've got a message for Joanna.
3: Who is it? Tell him to hold the line. We'll be through here in a minute.
6: Well, actually, they're right outside. Look, Mary, if it's some agent... They're not agents, uh, exactly. Well, who
3: are they exactly? Bill Collectors, men from Mars, what?
6: No, they're policemen.
4: Policemen? This is a private eye show. Tell them we're not casting men in rule. Right, Nils Frederick?
6: Uh, you don't understand... They're...
3: Well, come on, Mary. They're what?
6: Detectives. Detectives. And they want to talk to me? Yes. What about? They said it's something about... a murder...
3: clothesmen were standing by Mary's files, a stocky sunburned man in suede pants and a modified safari jacket, and a lean, dark man wearing a gray business suit. The second detective extended his wallet. I studied the ID, which bore a serious pose of him in a square collar tie and somewhat shorter haircut. The card said, Ames, Sergeant, Negro, Male, 5'11", weight 160, black hair, brown eyes, no visible scars. There was a third man in the outer office, a cab driver, who sat flipping his hat between his hands and whistling at the floor, his elbows on his knees. Mary explained his presence.
6: He's been waiting for over half an hour. Miss Redfern, Joanna, ordered him.
7: Yeah, let her take her time. It's only money.
3: (laughs) Miss Redfern works for me, Sergeant Ames. My name is Blixen.
7: My partner, Griswold.
3: The sunburned detective merely nodded. Then both men and Red went through the open door into my office. As I turned to follow them, a messenger boy dropped off the rewrite of our opening show. The cabbie I noticed was leaning around me trying to read the cover.
7: If you a TV producer? That's
3: what they call me. Mary, will you Xerox this, 15 copies? Right now? No, in the morning.
6: She's not in trouble, is she, Joanna?
3: Ellis, um, drive Mary out to the lot.
4: Don't worry, Red. All they can do is rubber hose, you
3: Stupid thing for Alice to have said to her. I liked Red. I could see Ames was quizzing her tough. Whether they resented it or not, I was going to go in. The cabby was stretching his neck to try and see into the room. I closed the door.
8: The last time you saw him was. Is this private? It's up to the young lady. They
5: know about Daniel and me. Daniel? The black friend I mentioned. Dan Gladstone, apparently, he's been in some kind of accident.
8: Oh? Two weeks. You haven't seen Mr. Gladstone since uh, roughly the 8th of May, then?
5: No, I haven't, or longer. Why not? I don't know what you mean.
8: You were fairly close friends, weren't you, Miss Redfern?
5: We were friends. I don't know how close.
8: Were you engaged? No. Didn't Gladstone give you a ring sometime
3: in February?
5: It was a joke. It came out of a penny candy jar.
3: Excuse me. but What kind of accident was this? Uh, he was shot in the back of the head.
5: Shot? Daniel?
3: And no accident.
5: Well, who told you about the ring?
8: Uh, What was the tenor of your last meeting, Miss Redfern? The what? What did you talk about?
5: We, uh, I I, I don't remember. Did you fight? I I just really can't remember. Did you
8: say if you show your black face around here again, I'll cut your damn woolly head off, or uh, words to that effect?
3: Now, wait a minute. Have you warned her? Given her her rights, or did you just forget? No, we didn't forget. She has a right to know who you've been talking to, who's been telling you these... Do you own a twenty-two caliber pistol, Miss Redford? Okay, that does it. Give me an outside line.
5: A pistol? No, of course not.
3: Red, cool it. I'm contacting a lawyer. You don't mind, do you, gentlemen? No, I think it's a very sound idea.
5: I don't need a lawyer.
3: You might
8: ask him to meet us at North Hollywood Division. uh, That's 11480 Tierra. You have her there in a half hour, Mr. Blixen.
3: Murder on television is one thing. It's an episode. By the end of the last reel, it's solved. The private eye puts everything together. I remember where it started, he says, back here, and then this happened, and that happened, and suddenly the solution and the chase, the commercial comes on, they roll the end credits, and it's over. On film, I had committed more murders and solved them and felt nothing. Cool. That's the way my detectives play it. But I was discovering that isn't the way it really is. My guts were turning. Hello? Wade? Yes. Yes. Wade, this is Nils Frederick.
9: Nils, what's the matter? You sound like
8: you
3: were canceled before you started. Wade, we've got a problem here. Oh? Like what? Like a suspect for murder. (laughs) The city by night had a warm, windswept face. Los Angeles was a Mediterranean town, I'd always felt, despite its size and location. All day long, it lay like a girl on its back by the sea, half asleep under its dark glasses, burning in the sun, amused by the boys who whistled and hung around. Only at dusk it began to stir. It would blink and sit up and rest its chin on its knees, gazing at the bronze-colored ocean, and perhaps accept a margarita or two. The cab driver didn't need a margarita. He was very talkative.
7: Boy, looks like all the idiots are out tonight. Hey, look at that coop. Hey, there's a real dilly. I tell you, these hippies look moth-eaten, but they ain't bad kids, most of them. You know what I mean? They come, they go.
3: A pro-hippie in L.A.? You're a rare man.
7: I tell you, it's tough to go against your group. You conform or you get drummed out of the core I see that in my own kid. He's got hair down to his knees, but the girls like it. Out of the way, you idiot! You know, I tell you, I love this town. <laughs> Too breezy back there for you? No,
5: it's fine.
7: Are you all right, Red?
5: You haven't asked me whether I did it or not
7: you realize that
3: i haven't all right did you shoot the man no that's a load off my mind
7: hey did you see that jerk a left turn and no signal (laughs) my wife wonders why i got a nervous stomach hey yeah you two want to buy a free press no thanks uh would you mind what is your name Uh, jack i thought i told you the young lady and i
3: have some things to talk about
7: Oh, sure sure (laughs) private is private
5: You think I'm not the murderous type, then?
3: If there is a type.
5: There's a type that goes all to pieces in a jealousy situation. The first person I was jealous of was my sister. I was four when she was born. I couldn't understand why my father had done that to me.
3: Don't you blame your mother, too?
5: She didn't count. She died when I was eight. She and my father were separated by then. He was living in Pennsylvania. She was in Hartford.
3: With you and your sister?
5: No. I'd already killed my sister.
3: You... you what?
5: I broke my sister's neck when she was seven months old.
3: When you set out to make a point, you don't fool around.
5: It's the fact. My mother left the carriage in the front porch. I pushed it down the steps. I wasn't punished. Just sent to a child psychiatrist and later to a very nice school in New Hampshire. That's what jealousy can do. My father used to come see me once in a while. He's married twice since my mother died three more
3: children. I thought you said you hadn't been punished. We rode along for a while, neither of us talking. Even the cab driver seemed more content since traffic had eased up some. I studied Red during the silence. She struck me as being very vulnerable.
5: Do you have any children? No. I know you're married. I looked up your studio biography.
3: Well, then it's out of date. We were divorced in 65.
5: Oh, let's see. I was born in 50, so I was 15 then. I'm sorry it didn't work out.
3: We made a mistake and we rectified it.
5: Very civilized.
3: My dear girl, a divorce is about as civilized as a gang rape. We've been married 18 years.
5: I think there must be something
7: wrong with marriage.
3: Not with the game, just with the players.
7: Ah, this must be the place.
3: Keep it running, Jack. We'll be going back into Hollywood.
7: Hey, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, Why don't I grab some deed and then I'll come back for you, huh? You don't want to buy the cab. (laughs) Hey, uh, wait a minute. What is this, a check? I'm sorry we don't take personal checks.
3: A voucher. I ride cabs a lot.
7: Oh, oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mr. Blixen.
3: Try us in about an hour.
7: Sure. Neil Frederick, I'm over here.
3: Wade Schreiber, your client, Joanna Redfern.
5: How do you do?
3: Joanna, is it, uh, Miss? Yes. Let's, uh, let's talk out here for a minute. I think before we go inside, we'd better, uh, clarify a couple of points.
5: I didn't kill Dan.
3: Yes, I, I understand that. I don't believe they're ready to accuse you, are we? They're just trying to get to the truth. <laughs> believe it or not. They said he was shot with a twenty-two. Yes, he was, and that's point number one. Joanna, do you own a twenty-two? No. Ever own one? No. Well, were you ever in contact with one? No. Okay, okay, I'll buy that Second, where were you last evening between, say, ten and midnight?
5: Uh, Ten, uh, Grauman's Chinese You went to a movie? Yes
3: Wade, you act like a cop Come on, Nils, wait a minute Who did you go to the movie with? Alone You often go to the movies alone?
5: Not often, I was just walking on Hollywood Boulevard My car's in the shop And I just went in
3: Where was he killed, Wade? On the valley side of the hills You know that area?
5: Not too well
3: well, there's a dead-end private street off Barry. It's called Ruby.
5: Oh, I know Ruby.
3: You would. Some kids found the corpse this morning by the side of the road. Dead about 12 hours. How do you know Ruby Avenue?
5: Oh, Lord.
3: Or come on. How do you know it?
5: Oh, we used to park up there.
3: You and Gladstone?
5: Once in a while.
3: Uh-huh. Had the body been dumped? No, no, his car was nearby. He was found about 20 feet from it. Hadn't been robbed, no sign of a struggle so he knew his killer he just strolled over under the trees lowered his head and somebody reached around and shot him what's the matter red you cold
5: mm, just a chill i'll get over it
3: there seems to be a witness report on file here
5: witness to what
3: evidently somebody heard you threaten dan gladstone
5: threaten him that, that's ridiculous
3: joanna did you two fight at all
5: well, i wouldn't say fight
3: well what would you say
5: well, we I'd say that well, we had words. What, uh, what about? But nothing important. Does it matter?
3: It matters. Now, please, Red. It must have been fairly important if it caused you two to break up.
5: He was a pusher, and he tried to get me hooked. I loved him, or I, I thought I loved him, but I told him to get lost. Did
3: you tell him, if you show your black face around here, I'll cut your head off?
5: Oh, God. Yes, I did.
3: Wade, what does this do to us? Well, I don't know, Nils. Sure gives him a peach of a motive to swing on. Well, we better go in.
2: Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. Someone's death. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour
1: you've been listening to the hollywood radio theater's presentation of the zero hour heard every weekday at this time rod serling is your host charles larson's someone's death was adapted for radio by gwen bagney and paul Dubo. george kennedy is nils frederick Joyce Bonifant is Red, and Robert Reed is Schreiber. Featured in the cast are Jesse White as Jack, Jay Novello as Ellis, Mary Jane Croft as Mary, and Herbert Jefferson, Jr. as Ames. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis, Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.
8: The Hollywood Radio Theater.
1: Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents. I'm Rod Serling.
2: You're listening to the Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Charles Larson's Inside Story of Television Murder. Someone's Death, starring George Kennedy, Joyce Boulifant, and Robert Reed, in Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Television producer Nils Frederick Blixen is an expert at solving murders of the fictional variety. But he's found that it's nothing at all like the real thing. The real thing keeps you awake nights, drives you in endless circles, and cannot be solved in a half hour time slot. The police have taken away his young female casting director, Joanna Redfern, who at this point has been cast herself in the leading role in a very real murder. But for Nils Frederick Blixen, Joanna is all wrong for the part, even though he now knows she's played it once before. Someone's death continues in a moment. <laughs>
0: Inside
3: the North Hollywood police station, the detectives took Red into a poster-encrusted cubicle from which I was barred. She cast me a ghastly grin just before the door closed in my face, and I felt my heart give an unaccustomed lurch. I paced back and forth along the short hallway until a sunburned civilian in overalls took pity on me and urged me not to worry about my daughter, since the Valley Police were gentlemen through and through. I thanked him and went outside, cut to the quick. She could be my daughter, damn it. I became obsessed with the idea that something had gone wrong and that they were booking her. I told myself I'd count to ten. Schreiber came out on the count of seven, joking and chatting with Sergeant Ames. Red was pale but composed. Ames went back inside and Schreiber gave me the rundown. No, it was a breeze. They didn't know about Gladstone being a pusher, so I didn't mention it. No, they didn't suspect her any more than they suspect the governor. Well, come on, Red, I'll take you home. Uh, wait a second, Wade. Don't you still live way out in West Valley? Tarzana, yeah. What's the difference? I can take Red into Hollywood and then swing over Coldwater.
5: I wouldn't hear of it.
3: I've ordered a cab. Oh. <laughs> okay, Niels Frederick, I uh, I get the message. Well, I'll call you tomorrow, Red. Uh, we'll have dinner one night. You doing anything Saturday. No. Good, it's a date. And, uh, good night, buddy. Good night, buddy. Give my love to all your kids.
5: Sweet man.
3: My company's lawyer. We've been friends for years. Let's walk to the corner. Maybe there's a cab stand there or a bus.
5: How old is he? 30,
3: 31.
5: You mentioned something about kids?
3: He's got four.
5: Holy Moses.
3: Hey, cab! Oh, Jack!
7: Oh, Jack!
5: Nice wife, I suppose.
3: She's not married. She died.
7: I'm sorry I'm late. I was hungrier than I thought.
3: (laughs) Now that we were back in Jack's cab, he considered us family, old friends. Rested his arm along the back of the seat, apologizing over and over for making us wait. Seems he telephoned his wife from the restaurant and got involved in a family go-round. Didn't want us to misunderstand. He idolized his wife. But she didn't know what she was doing when it came to raising kids.
5: Take the vine off ramp, or a Gower, either one.
7: I blame myself, too. This ain't no job for a parent hacking. Sometimes I'm out 10, 12 hours at a stretch. Hey, you're a producer. Any chance of getting studio work?
3: Transportation? Uh, You'd have to
7: check with the union. Ah, Forget it. Maybe I'll go back to school. Landscape architecture. I used to work for a Japanese nursery up in Montrose. Boy, that really turns me on, Japanese gardens, you know what I mean? Pebbles, a little moss, a bonsai, (laughs) knocks me out. You know what a haiku is?
5: Japanese poem, three lines, 17 syllables. Quote, white cherry blossoms, colder than snow when I call and you are not there.
3: Oh, son of a gun. That's your own composition?
5: Birthday present from an ex-friend of mine, Very dark, friend. I'll make a right turn on the long pray, Jack.
7: Hey, uh, Miss Redfern, the secretary told me you didn't have a car. Uh, You get off work around the same time every night. I'm usually someplace near the studio. I could pick you up on a regular regular basis, you know?
5: I have a car. It's just in the garage now, but thanks.
3: How about picking me up? I don't have a car. I'll write you a free haiku every fifth trip.
7: Yeah, (laughs) the heck with the haikus i do it for the money alone. What time? Six. Oh,
5: right here. The big brown fourplex on the left.
7: Now, wait for me. I won't be long. Oh, no, no, I can't. My wife will kill me. Look, I'll take another voucher. That's 310. Pick you up tomorrow at six, Mr. Blixen.
3: I was glad for the opportunity to be alone with her. We stood on the sidewalk a moment while she gave me a rundown on the tenants in the building, pointed out where she lived, on the second floor. Downstairs right was where Leonard Ellis and his granddaughter Heidi lived.
5: Odd little girl.
3: How odd?
5: She never blinks for one thing. She's 14 going on 45. I spent age 14 in tears. Maybe that's why I distrust her so much. She doesn't cry. Never needs comforting.
3: What happened to her parents?
5: They were both in the army. Killed themselves. It was horrible. Ellis had to take over. He adopted her. I hinted to him once he ought to send her to an analyst. He almost hit the ceiling. She lives on comic books, got them piled in the garage so high you can't get a car in. She's very spiritual around her grandfather. But twice now I caught her burning grasshoppers to death with a magnifying glass.
3: She sounds like a charmer. Could Heidi have heard your argument? Was she at home that night?
5: She's always home. She's always around.
3: I followed Red up toward the fourplex. It was a house that only could have felt comfortable in Southern California. Curved red Spanish tiles lay on the flat roof like a matador's hat on an Iowa woman. There was a moving blur on the porch swing. She was an unmemorable girl, Heidi, half hidden behind long flaxen hair that fell to her bosom. At odd moments, she'd nudge some of the hair away from the left side of her face. I never saw the right She wore jeans A checkered shirt that hung out Covering her thick waistline And painted toenails
5: Hi, aren't you in bed? Oh, this is my boss, Mr. Blixen This is Heidi
3: Hello, Heidi I knew your grandfather He works for me
10: Do you know Donnie Osmond?
3: No, I'm, I'm afraid I don't I know the Lone Ranger, though He's a fine man
10: You know why the Lone Ranger and Tonto broke up? No, why? He found out what Kimo really meant. <laughs> That's a joke, son.
3: It's a real thigh slapper.
10: Well, where's everybody? They're all in boom-booms playing cards. Did the fuzz find you? They found me. Were they here? I don't know. Of course you know. You talked to them. They said you killed Dan Gladstone. Did you know Peter Laurie? Heidi... What's the
5: trouble between you and me?
10: Well, then, don't answer. Did you ever see anybody so clumsy in your life?
3: But beautiful.
10: Who, Red? She curdles my milk. Thinks she's the queen of Sheba. I hate her. I really hate her.
3: You know who she looks a lot like? Your mother.
10: My mother? Oh, you never saw my mother.
3: Well, there's a picture of her on your grandpa's desk in her whack uniform. What was her name?
10: Florence.
3: Maybe you hate red because she reminds you of Florence.
10: You're nuts. If she reminded me of my mother, I'd love her because I loved my mother.
3: Even after she left you? Did you tell the police about Red's and Dan's argument? Did you tell him about the ring he gave her from the candy jar?
10: What's the difference?
3: Well, I suppose it was the last time you saw Dan, the, the day of the argument.
10: He came around one more time, about a week ago, last Tuesday. To see Red? She was at work.
3: Who did he come to see then?
10: I don't know. Nobody was home.
3: You were home?
10: Well. I wasn't to begin with. I got sick at school, and the nurse excused me, came home. I really felt terrible.
3: And Dan was here?
10: Yeah, around the back.
3: Well, what did you talk about? Now, it might be important, Heidi.
10: Did you know Boris Karloff? Lon Chaney? You sure you didn't know Peter Laurie?
3: Heidi, think about what I said about the resemblance. <laughs> She just sat there Her arms wrapped around her body Never had I seen such malevolence On the face of anyone so young I thought about what she'd said About hating Red I believe she really meant it As Heidi said Everyone was in Boom Boom's apartment of course, it was a little tough getting in because the Hayworths, Boom Boom, and her husband, Fred, leery of burglars, had put a new safety catch on the flimsy door earlier in the evening. And for a while, none of the people inside could work it. And while we waited for them to figure it out, Red gave me a rundown on whom I would meet.
5: Boom Boom owns the building. She lives in this flat with her fifth husband, Fred, and her ex-lover, Preston Andrade.
3: It sounds like a comfortable arrangement.
5: They're all in their 60s now. It's more like two brothers and a sister. Then there's Phil, Boom Boom's nephew. He dropped out of high school. His father kicked him out. She took him in.
3: A school kid. Prime customer for a pusher. Incidentally, where did you meet Dan Gladstone?
5: Uh, Arcadia Playhouse. I saw him in a play. He was good. You'll be crazy about Boom Boom. She used to dance naked on a drum in Paris. That's how she got her name and lost her hearing.
3: Uh, Sorry folks Come on, come
5: on in Uh, Everybody, meet my boss
3: Fred Hayworth, the master mechanic Was a tall, bald man In undershirt and grey pants Who kept scratching nervously And had kindly bloodshot eyes When he offered me a cigar And I took it, he seemed startled And all the time I was there He didn't say a word Left the conversation to his wife's ex-lover Andrade Knew me from Warner Brothers, he said Worked in wardrobe Which I should have spotted on sight from the way he dressed Italian shoes, tight pants A silk shirt And a thick black toupee, gray at the temples Phil, the nephew, was a quiet kid Whose yellow hair burst from his head Like the flame of a newly lighted match Worked in a drugstore, he told me When I asked Phil if he liked his job better than music Andrade answered for him Andrade seemed to answer for everyone how did you know about uh, Phil's music? The guitar, right? Uh-huh. His fingertips, the calluses. Add the guitar case in the corner and, I come on, like an instant Sherlock Holmes.
5: Or Saul Stagg.
3: Who's Saul Stagg?
5: That's his new detective. Uh-huh. Starts on network television in the fall.
4: Oh, Murphy's playing that.
3: The voice came from behind me. There were two of them. Red introduced them as René Ortiz and his friend Bobby. René was a frail, heavy-headed Frenchman who powder-coated his blue chin. He was smoking a black cigarette in an agate-colored holder, and he'd been drinking. And he seemed in no mood for conversation. His friend Bobby was a lot younger, higher strung, covered with little gifts, rings on both hands, a silver bracelet, St. Christopher's medal on a thin golden chain around his neck. Bobby, you said you knew my star, Murph Smith. Where from?
4: Oh, round here and there, parties.
3: The Acadia Playhouse? Mm hmm. But well, you're an actor then. Well, theoretically. Renee doesn't like me to work. I understand Dan Gladstone belonged to the Acadia. Oh, did he? Uh yes, yes, you know, I believe he did.
4: I think I do remember Gladstone there. Of course there were so many of us.
3: I knew Danny casually. Renee spit one word out, casually, turned and whipped into the kitchen. I felt Renee's jealousy bordered on violence. Red smiled at me, took my arm, and guided me in to meet Boom Boom. And I, Nils Frederick Blixen, got drunk on Boom Boom Hayworth that night in Hollywood and never recovered. It was love at first sight. She had never been a beautiful woman, and now at 60-odd she was big-hipped, rattled-looking, and quite deaf. But there was enough left in her violet eyes and the seductive way she used her hands to effectively tongue-tie a stronger man than I. She wore a green gambler's eye-shade over her dyed jet-black hair. She sat at a round table covered by a blanket and a multitude of poker chips and extended both hands to me as gently as a child touching a pony's nose.
11: How nice.
3: How do you do, Boom Boom?
11: Oh, you don't have to shout, chérie. I'm not that Jeff. So you are the one who saved our dear Joanna from the Sanfleak. Oh
3: no, 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 no. Let me correct that. I I didn't save her from anything. The police simply began questioning Red because she and Dan Gladstone were uh had been going together.
5: Listen, we didn't mean to break up your poker game when we came in. I know. Of course.
11: Uh, You two go upstairs and fun, no? Good luck on your new series. Uh, your name again, uh, Blixen. no, no no, we are friends,
3: nils Frederick
11: nils Frederick, charming, thank you, Bumbu. Andrade, get me a cigarette, Oh, your leading actor, Cherie?
3: a young man named Murphy Smith
11: I'd love to meet him
3: when we get into production, you come on out.
11: I adore it. It's a date. You... Uh, come. You kiss my cheek. Huh?
3: Good night.
5: Night, everybody. I
4: uh, are glad you stopped in. Night.
5: Well, what'd you think?
3: Uh, oh, I think that Phil could have a motive uh, if he's deeply involved with narcotics.
5: No, I meant what did you think about Boom Boom?
3: Oh... Fantastic. There was no sign of the cab, and the porch swing was empty. Heidi was gone. I filled my lungs with jasmine scent and then climbed to the second landing, to Red's apartment. She'd gone up a moment or two before me to fix us each a drink. When I came in, I could hear her in the kitchen, knocking things over. She came out with two scotches. Neat.
5: I called your cab again. The woman said that he was on the way. Cheers. Cheers. It must be awful not to have a car in this town. I don't know how you manage.
3: Well, you were lucky not to have had one last night.
5: Last night?
3: Gladstone's murderer drove to and from the ambush. Your car was in the shop.
5: Yes. Well... Oh, to be 100% candid.
3: It wasn't in the shop.
5: No, it was in the shop, all right. Oh, hell, they'll find out anyway. I borrowed Renee's.
3: Naturally.
5: It's almost as if a malignant fate were pursuing me, isn't it?
3: Did you tell Wade Schreiber this?
5: About malignant fate?
3: About having Renee's car?
5: No, I didn't. I will, though, I promise, soon as I see him.
3: Tell me about the letter, the anonymous letter concerning you and Gladstone.
5: What about it? It's just one of those hateful, illiterate ravings. It didn't make any sense.
3: What did you do with it?
5: I tore it up.
3: Which one did it threaten, you or, or Gladstone? Both of us. If he ever came back again or if you ever saw him again, is that the idea?
5: More or less.
3: And Gladstone did come back and now he's dead?
5: Well, you can't call that cause and effect because he certainly never came back after I booted him out.
3: Ah, oh, but he did. When? Last Tuesday. Last Tuesday. How do you know? Heidi told me. Oh, Don't you believe her?
5: Oh, well, let me put it this way. Heidi romanticizes. All
3: right. Indulge me. Assume she was telling the truth for once. Who would he have come to see? Boom Boom?
5: Maybe he was crazy about Boom Boom.
3: What'd she think of him?
5: He was a man. She approved.
3: Did Boom Boom's husband, what was his name, Fred, did he approve?
5: Fred believes in letting people do as they please. Fred isn't even jealous of Andrade. Why should he have fussed about Danny?
3: Preston Andrade isn't black.
5: Oh, nobody around here cares about that.
3: Jealousy isn't always justified. Remember?
5: If you're referring to my sister, that's rotten.
3: I'm sorry. Did you notice anything peculiar about young Phil downstairs? Like his barbiturate eyes? Let's say he makes a decision one day. He decides he loves his music more than his downers. He tells his suppliers to bug off. The supplier threatens to tell Phil's aunt. Phil tries to scare him away with a letter. It doesn't work. You want another?
5: Well, if you insist on playing detective.
3: I do. Two points. First, Ellis was wrong. There were blacks living around here, to my knowledge, as far back as the 40s. So the objection to Dan wasn't from that quarter. Point two, the letter made a threat. And the threat was carried out. That scares me.
5: Because we're dealing with a nut?
3: We could be. Where are you going, Red?
5: To get the letter.
3: But I thought... I lied. The room seemed close now, stifling. French doors led onto a small, Moorish balcony. In a moment she was back, she dropped the letter into my hand was wrinkled and dirty. Someone, read presumably, had crumpled it at one time into a ball and then smoothed it out again. Words cut from cheap magazines had been pasted in soiled, uneven rows. I read it aloud. Dear Jade, tell your black paramour to clear out or we'll cut off it's mm. a gruesome threat. Interesting words, though.
5: The ones you mmmmed over?
3: No paramour, and jade. Red, this letter threatens your life, and you didn't ever think of showing it to the police? Who all handled this letter?
5: Well, everybody. Dan, me, Boom Boom, Fred, Andrade, Renee, everybody in this house. What are you thinking about, fingerprints? Well,
3: oh, not much need to hurry on that now. I'd like to borrow it, may I? Sure. Good night.
5: Good night, Niels Frederick.
3: She moved forward, trod on my toe, and kissed me softly on the cheek. But as I went down the stairs, I couldn't drive from my mind the distressing realization that she had lied to the police about not having a car last night. She had lied to me about the threatening letter. And what else had she lied about? The image of her pushing her baby sister's carriage down the steps blotted everything else out.
2: Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense Someone's Death. I'm Rod Serling, and this is the Zero Hour.
1: listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour heard every weekday at this time Rod Serling is your host Charles Larson's Someone's Death was adapted for radio by Gwen Bagney and Paul Dubov George Kennedy is Nils Frederick Joyce Boulifant is Red and Robert Reed is Schreiber featured in the cast are Jeanette Nolan as Boom Boom Jesse White as Jack Catherine Burns as Heidi Paul Dubov as Andrade and Tom Troop as Bobby Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again, rest your eyes. And listen here to the zero hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents...
2: I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Charles Larson's inside story of television murder. Someone's death. Starring George Kennedy. Joyce Bulifont and Robert Reed. In Elliot Lewis's production of "The Zero Hour. has become very much a part of our lives. Good, bad, or indifferent, television exists. When it's bad, one has only to turn it off. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said for murder. Once committed, the act lingers on, as do the consequences. Nils Frederick Blixen produces television programs. Joanna Redfern is his casting director. Dan Gladstone was her boyfriend... An ex boyfriend who met extinction when shot through the head by an unknown asylum. The police are casting young Joanna as the murderer. Nils Frederick prefers to disagree, and he's screening a large cast of character types to fill the role. Nils Frederick Blixen. He thought he knew it all. Someone's death will continue after this message.
3: I overslept, got in my office about 10.30. It was all in the paper. The murder, Joanna working on the series. At least they got my name wrong. They called me R.G. Blixman. The phone had been ringing all morning. My boss, Arthur Todd, among others. My secretary is a real brain. The trade papers, the scandal sheets, she told them all the same thing. I was out. So as not to make her a liar, I left the executive building, passed along a row of darkened projection rooms climbed some narrow wooden stairs to a frosted glass door marked Research. There I found old man Tibbet. He'd been in charge of this department since it opened. When he referred to the big war, he meant number one.
12: Ah, hey. Mr. Nils, Frederick Blixen in person. How's the new uh, series coming?
3: Walter, I've got a tough job for you. Mm -hmm. I want to know what magazine these words were cut out of.
12: Can you do it? Uh, In other words, you're thinking of using this threat letter in a script? Oh, they won't let you use language like this on TV.
3: No, it's just something I'm working on. What I want you to do is find what magazines these words were cut out of. Could you do it if I gave you a general area, uh, like comic books?
12: Well, I could try. Uh, Say, uh, who do I charge my time to if it's not a TV episode?
3: To me. On the way back to my office I stopped in at the executive washroom Which bears a slight resemblance to the Taj Mahal And ran into my star Murph Smith Combing his hair in front of one of the mirrors A broken-nosed, slope-shouldered man in his late thirties
12: This murder, Nils Frederick I called Mr. Todd at three this morning And asked him to get rid of the Redfern girl He promised he would I always thought she was a little gummed up Did you? Well, you know, hanging around with all those blacks. By the way, why do I have to be Jewish in this series? I didn't know things like that bothered you, Murph.
3: You want things separate but equal, right? Right. Did Acadia Playhouse work that way, too, when you were there? I met a friend of yours last night, Bobby something. He lives with Rene Orthace. Oh, Bobby. Yes, yes, he went to Acadia. So did Dan Gladstone, and he was murdered.
12: I've got it. We never mention I'm Jewish. I I play a Jewish inside. And my secretary, Raquel, we play her blonde. A lot of Mexicans are, you know. You buy that? No.
3: Is that clear enough? No. Oh, come on. I haven't demanded much. You haven't deserved much. You'll play it the way it's written. Is that clear? The way it's written.
12: (laughs) Come on. It's a gag. You're the producer. What the heck do I know? Okay? Okay. I
3: spent the rest of the day trying to find a director for Isabel Chavez's test, going over the script, and before I knew it, it was seven, and Jack the cabbie was there to take me home. It had been a lousy day. When I got to the studio in the morning, the Chavez test was underway. I didn't have to see it. The reports came to my office from those in the know. cameramen grips, all the guys on the set who'd seen him come and go. She was sensational, was all I said. Finally, I decided to go down and take a look for myself. When I reached the door of the stage, there was Preston Andrade. We were both stopped from entering by a blinking red light.
4: Hey, pal, how are you? You started working here now? No, no, remember you invited us? And what do you know? A friend of mine is in there testing for your series. You know Isabel Chavez? How <laughs> Do I know her? Boom Boom's inside, we all know each other. Then you and Isabel are friends? Oh, for years, since my wife died in 1960. Isn't Boom Boom jealous? Jealous? (laughs) She hates her, even though I'm old enough to be Isabel's grandfather. It's like with you and Red. It's just Boom Boom likes to come to a set. Uh, Want some coffee from the machine? I could use some. No, thanks.
3: Incidentally, have the police been around questioning you and Boom Boom and the others? I'm not worried. I got an alibi. I was in Tijuana on business.
4: I heard there was some good cashmere down there. I suppose everybody else was home. Well, Bobby and Renee were home. Boom Boom was at a preview. Phil, I'm not sure. About Boom Boom's husband? Fred? I think he had a lodge meeting. You know, that kid Phil works too hard. All day at the drugstore, then practices, eats, and falls into bed. Where does he sleep? In my room back of the flat.
3: Uh, then you'd know if he ever tried to sneak out. Oh, I don't think he
4: does, which is more than I can say for our little neighbor.
3: Which little neighbor?
4: Heidi. She sneaks out
3: nights. Do you know that for sure? As sure as I've
4: seen her crawl out her bathroom window. You've seen her? Many times. She has to pass my room. Where does she go? Who knows? But I know what she'd say if I asked her where she was going. What's that? Out. Out.
3: I spent just long enough on stage 16 to verify that Red's actress find, Isabel Chavez, was indeed a new cut On the way to the office, I ran the usual gamut of disaster. My production manager beefing about the number of setups, my associate producer bringing me network static about credits. And then the front office informed me I'd lost my first choice director and would have to beat the bushes at this late date for a replacement. If that wasn't enough, I found my secretary in tears.
6: Oh, Mr. Blixen, I hate to bring my personal problems to the office. it's, It's nothing. I mean, it's something, but it just can't be helped. Let's not talk about it. Let's. Well, it's my father. My mother called this morning from Chicago, and he's 72, and they just found out he's got cancer.
3: I'm sorry, Mary. Would you like to go there?
6: I just can't waltz off and leave you. Not in the beginning of the season. Maybe later. We'll see. They're going to keep me notified. And if I have to go, I'll go later. Oh, so now I've added another little straw to your back. Let's see. Uh, Mr. Schreiber called. He said it was important. Shall I get him back?
3: Yes, please. I'll take it inside. Yes, Wade?
8: Nils? Uh, look, I've had another conversation with my friend at the North Hollywood station. Apparently, Joanna lied to them about
3: something. All he'd say was uh, she told a whopper they checked up on it and she's in big trouble. Now, he expects Sergeant Ames to go to the DA within the next 10 days. If it's about the car, she told you she borrowed Renee's car that night, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, she
8: told me that, and I told the police it's not that. They've
3: checked Renee's tires, and they don't match the tracks they found. I didn't know that they'd found any tracks. Oh, yeah, a couple of pretty good ones. Uh, fairly well worn firestones. And then what else could it be?
9: Well, unfortunately, she's the only suspect who seems to have had both motive and no real alibi to speak of.
3: What about Gladstone's clientele? Surely Ames knows by now he was a pusher. No, Gladstone was very small potatoes, just starting
8: out. Uh, his suppliers in Tijuana, but informers haven't turned up a thing.
3: Wade, you still have a couple of private operatives on the payroll?
8: Yeah. L- listen, if you got an
3: angle, tell me. Preston Andrade. He said he was in Tijuana the night of the murder, buying cashmere. Now, there's nothing easier to check out. So, what's your point? I don't know. I'm fishing. But people have a tendency to project their own attitudes. Maybe Andrade's the jealous, possessive one. You saying that Boom Boom and Dan
9: Gladstone were playing around? Why not? Well, I... Nils, she's old enough to... to, to What's age
3: got to do with it? To hear you people talk, you'd think that everybody went off into a cocoon or something at the age of...
9: Nils, look, I'm sorry, all right? I'll write it down. Preston Andrade, Tijuana, jealous, okay? Anything else?
3: Oh, uh... Andrade's wife died in 1960. I want to know how. Wife how? And as long as we're reconfirming alibis, find out if Renee and Bobby were really both home on the night of the murder. Motive? Jealousy again. Renee, Bobby, both home. Okay, go on. Phil? The kid isn't a suspect. He uses downers more than occasionally. Question who supplied him. Suppose he wanted out and his source wouldn't leave him alone. And I'd also like to know why he left Hollywood high. Phil, Holly, High, Okay. And I want to know if Heidi can drive a car. Nils, is there anybody you don't suspect? Certainly. Red. Monday morning, my series went before the cameras with more problems than I care to recount. And my neck stuck out to here for having signed Isabel Chavez. Not to mention my star, Murph Smith's charming acceptance of his leading lady.
9: I am not
12: going to work with that flat-headed cholo. No way ever. I want that human fright way out of my series. I'm the star. I'm getting out.
3: He was an overpaid employee of NFB Productions, and he'd honor his commitment or answer in court, and that's what I told him. We were only half a day behind schedule at the end of the first day's shooting, and I was badly in need of a drink. Mary was not in the office... She's probably down in the ladies' room. She'd been doing a lot of crying lately. So I had to look for the whiskey myself. I found it where she'd filed it, under W. And I was walking into my office in search of a glass. Wade Schreiber was stretched out on my couch, his arm over his face. I made that two glasses. Might as well give me the bad news. I can read it all over you. Mm. Well, if there's one rule a lawyer's trained to live by, it's never get personally involved with a client. Red's in trouble. Nothing a miracle wouldn't cure. Well, if you're going to tell me, tell me. All right, Nils. Brace yourself. You know the twenty-two that was used to kill Gladstone? They found it? Not yet. But they found out where it was purchased. And a gun dealer says he sold it to a young woman. Let me guess. The woman was a redhead. There'll probably be a warrant out for Red by tonight. Warrant for murder? You betcha. Murder One. Wade Schreiber straight the information. A clerk in a pawn shop in Fraser, a little town in the Imperial Valley, remembered his boss selling a twenty-two to a young lady from Los Angeles on the 5th or the 6th of May. That was the weekend Joanna and Gladstone had had their big fight. The 6th was also the Sunday Joanna had told the police when she just got into her car and drove and drove. Through the Imperial Valley. Yeah, if the guy can identify Joanna's picture, they'll have her. They won't have anything except a girl who bought a gun in a moment of fear and panic. Probably to defend herself with. Yeah, that's what I like about you, Nils, an unbiased opinion. Have you told Joanna? I would if I could find her, but I can't. I think she's run out. Well, the police know where she is. She's their chief suspect. They must have a tail on her. Your TV detective would have a tail on A real policeman can't afford those luxuries. Well, she's got to be around... Maybe she went to the beach. What, in this weather? Come on, Nils. Doesn't Boom Boom know where she is? No, and no sign of Boom Boom either. No sign of anybody. Except Ellis' granddaughter. Heidi? Andrade tells me that Heidi's been sneaking out of the house at night. Heidi hates Red with a blind passion. Red reminds her of her mother. Suggesting what? That she's trying to get even for the dirty trick her mother pulled on her? Nils, this is a child we're talking about. Children hate. And sometimes kill. Where would you expect to see the word paramour in print? I don't
9: know. Victorian novel?
3: This word was cut out from a magazine. Cheap ink, semi-pulp stock, some letters in color, some hand-lettered. Who are today's Victorians, today's adolescents? And what do adolescents read? Comic books. There were comic books piled to the ceiling in that garage, but anybody in the fourplex could have gotten to them. And you can't be absolutely positive the words were cut out of those comic books. Hmm. Well, I'm working on it. (laughs) As I entered the sound stage, they had just wrapped up the day's shooting. My star had retreated and peaked to his dressing room. Isabel Chavez was slumped in a canvas chair with her name lettered on it.
11: He's a real thinker, isn't
3: he? He's a talented child who expected us to cast a starlet he could dominate. Not an actress that he'd have to compete with.
11: Oh, oh, for the life of a movie star, the glamour, the excitement, the aching behind.
3: (laughs) You're doing great. Oh, one thing, Isabel, before you go. Yes? I just heard about a deal on four new tires. I can't use them. Wondered if you or maybe Andrade...
11: Not me. I'm in good shape and Andrade just bought some.
3: Oh, really? When?
11: When? Uh, two weeks, I think.
3: I don't suppose you'd remember what they were.
11: Sure, the same as he turned in uh, Firestones. A Salaueo patrol.
3: It had begun to rain. Ellis was coming toward me across the lot. He was drunk, weaving drunk, as though he'd been wandering, not sure of where he was. He kept widening his eyes in an effort to focus. We stopped under an overhang.
4: Hey, how, how are you? Mary, Mary said you wanted to see me.
3: Red's in trouble, Leonard. She's going to be arrested. I need a drink. You're gonna choke eventually on that poison.
4: Oh, I said there's who'd even notice I was gone.
3: Heidi. Come on, Leonard. Let's go back to the office.
4: Heidi doesn't give a tigger damn about anybody but herself. A mother's daughter. A bad seed. I know it, I know it. Question is, where did her mother get it? Not from my side of the family. Never was a murder on the other side, so her.
3: It doesn't matter what your priest thinks, my friend. Suicide is not murder.
4: Who told you about my daughter?
3: Matter of fact, Red did. He tell you she
4: killed herself?
3: She said that Florence and her husband were a double suicide.
4: Yeah. Floyd shot her husband in the head after dinner one night and then stuck the gun in her own mouth and pulled the chair. Her birthday was June the 3rd. She would she would have been 38 years old yesterday. Oh. <laughs> now you know why the old sots started drinking last night and kept it up and up and up. I'm all right. All right, all
1: right,
3: don't worry. The rain had increased. It fell straight down in steely sheets, roaring onto the pavement. I raced up the slippery steps. On into the building and into my office. Ellis right behind me.
6: Oh, uh, wait, he's just coming in.
3: Mary seemed suddenly flustered. She was on the phone jiggling it to get her party back. Jack was there waiting to drive me home.
7: Hi, Mr. Blixen. Hey, can you believe this rain?
3: Jack. uh, Oh, Mary, was, was that red on the phone?
6: No, it was Heidi for her grandfather, but she's hung up. Leonard, she wants to know if you're coming home.
3: Mary, Mary, give me your file key. Come
6: on. The bottle's empty. I threw it out. Mary, I want the key.
4: The bar's
3: closed, Leonard. I went into my office and dialed red immediately. No answer. I put the phone back in its cradle, vaguely conscious of the conversation from my outer office. Mary was on the phone talking to Heidi, something about whether or not Ellis would be coming home for dinner.
12: Heidi, your
6: grandfather says you go ahead, fix yourself a TV dinner, and then he'll eat when he gets there.
3: I saw him lunch for the phone, but the connection had already been broken.
4: Why don't let me talk to
6: her? Leonard, you're too drunk. Now sober up before you go out. Here, have some black coffee.
3: Mary was right. He was drunk. I offered to take him in the cab, but he just walked on ahead of us when Jack and I came out of the office. It was pouring now.
7: Hey, I'm sorry I parked on the street. I got here a little early. Hey, watch out for that cat! Ah, don't worry. Cats can take care of themselves. But he was under that car, in that dry spot. He could be run over. You see him beat it? Now he's under my cap. Come on, cat, get out from under there. Uh, this, this, this'll do it. There. (laughs) You see him? You see him? Let it, see him go.
3: I told Jack to take me to Red's apartment. The only thing I could hope for was that I'd find her there. I wasn't in the mood for conversation.
7: Hey, I made one up for her. Hmm? A haiku for Miss Redford. You want to hear it? Listen to this. Snowman on the hill, melting in the springtime sun...
3: That's me when you smile. That's nice, Jack.
7: (laughs) Nice? (laughs) You kidding? That's lousy.
3: No, not at all. Not lousy at all. I know exactly what you mean. Exactly. And I did. Exactly. Snowman on the hill, melting in the springtime sun. That's me when you smile. There was no smile when we got to Red's place. There were police cars, flares, and barricades.
12: Four units. Any units in the area to 16,000 to
3: A cop in the street was waving for us to drive on. I told Jack to go back to the corner and wait for me. And I changed my mind when I realized that all of the excitement was at Ellis's apartment. There was no way to make out a voucher in the downpour, so I dug out a $5 bill, paid Jack, and sent him away. Sergeant Ames?
8: Oh, Blixen. Where's Miss Redfern? In custody. She's been booked for this murder, too. This murder?
3: In two minutes, I had the story. Detectives Ames and Griswold had been second and third to see the body. Red was first. They found her standing over it. Heidi Ellis was dead. Murdered. And Heidi's blood was all over Red's hands.
2: At this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. Someone's death. I'm Rod Serling, and this is the Zero Hour.
1: Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Charles Larson's Someone's Death was adapted for radio by Gwen Bagney and Paul Dubov. George Kennedy is Niels Frederick, Joyce Boulevard is Red, and Robert Reed is Schreiber. Featured in the cast are Jeanette Nolan as Boom Boom, Jesse White as Jack, Dawes Butler as Tibbet, Sam Edwards as Murph, Paul Dubov as Andrade. Mary Jane Croft as Mary, Jane Avello as Ellis, and Herbert Jefferson Jr. as Ames. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents.
2: I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to the Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Charles Larson's Inside Story of Television Murder Someone's Death. Starring George Kennedy, Joyce Boulevant, and Robert Reed. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Just when we are safest, there's a sunset touch, a fancy from a flower bell, someone's death, a chorus ending from Euripides. Robert Browning on Men and Women. For television producer Nils Frederick Blixen, someone's death was prologue to a show unwritten. He cast himself in the hero's role. His youthful casting director, Joanna Redfern, his leading lady, But somebody is not following the script. A second someone's death has been written in. Nor is Joanna Redfern playing her part as she should. The heroine is not supposed to be found at the scene of the crime... with blood on her hands. For Nils Frederick Blixen, life behind the camera... was never this frustrating. But that's the difference between fiction and fact. And the fact remains. Someone's death was murder... Our story continues after this word.
3: One would have thought, seeing Heidi, that she'd fallen asleep over her book. She'd been struck twice in the face by a sharp instrument with a long blade, probably an axe. The murderer may have been splashed, probably had been. An examination would show traces of blood in the trap under the kitchen sink where he or she had washed. No one in the fourplex had heard a sound. The murder weapon was nowhere to be seen. I stood in the doorway and watched a police car drive red away, Her face in the window blurred by rain. Sergeant Ames, I want Miss Redfern's attorney notified. He has been. Did you know the child that was killed? Child. Tragic, tragic child. My God. Her grandfather to get home? We didn't. When did this happen? We found her about ten minutes to seven.
8: She hadn't been dead long. I know. What do you mean? My secretary spoke to her. Why don't you come back inside, Mr. Blitzen? No, 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 not the Ellis apartment. We're not quite through there. Upstairs to Miss Redfern's.
3: In Red's apartment, Detective Ames took a statement from a pale, perspiring René Ortiz, who protested he knew nothing. He'd come home with a severe headache, he'd taken three aspirins, and he'd been awakened by the police at seven.
8: I believe you have a roommate, Mr. Ortez, a Mr. Leeds. We, Bobby Leeds, We, oui. Where is Mr. Leeds now?
12: I am sorry, I, I cannot tell you. He is no longer living at my place. We had a little uh, disagreement.
8: Right, uh, where does he work?
12: No, 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 no. Bobby does not work. He is a lily of the field. Occasionally, uh, he acts. You might say uh, he is a mimic, a female
8: impressionist. Okay, okay. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Ortez. You may go. Oh, and uh, send up the boy, Phil Waters, will you?
12: We, oui, we. Oui.
8: Mm. Incidentally, uh, Mr. Blixen, you said the little girl called your office tonight. Uh,
3: At what time was that? Uh, About 6.30, I should guess. I had looked at my watch at 6.25, and my secretary said Heidi had called a little before that, and then she phoned back about 6.30. And you spoke to the child at that time? My secretary spoke to her. Uh, Your secretary's name and address, Mr. Blixen? Miss Mary McGrath, 400 and a half, Willow Way, and that's in Glendale. Uh Uh-huh. Would Miss McGrath be familiar with the little girl's voice? Absolutely. They'd spoken to each other many times. On the telephone, hmm? On and off the telephone. There's no
8: way she could be fooled, not even by a uh, professional mimic like a
3: female impersonator? Hmm. Well, my secretary certainly didn't say anything. It was Heidi's voice as far as she was concerned. And that's all I can go on. May I ask one question? Certainly. Do you have the murder weapon? Nope. Then why have you arrested Miss Redfern? Well, uh, Miss
8: Redfern stated she arrived home at approximately six forty-five. She said she noticed the Ellis door open slightly, called to Heidi, got no answer, and walked in. Now, we came along a few minutes later, heard someone cry out. Miss Redfern was standing over the
3: body with blood on her hands. <laughs> The driver picked me up the next morning to go see Red where they were holding her, at the Sybil Brand facility for women.
4: Oh, in my opinion, you Nils, know, they
8: would
3: have been uh, better to concentrate on tying her to the Gladstone murder. Now they have to show a connection between Gladstone and Heidi, and I, I don't think they're going to be able to do that. Is that your good news for the day? Let's well, a try. Well, what are you dragging your heels about? Get her off the Gladstone murder. She bought a gun. Well, let them do a ballistics test on it. Yes, Frederick, I'm afraid there's a bit of a hitch there. What do you mean? You see, the other day when your
8: boss, Todd, had red-fired, she went home, got in her newly repaired car,
3: drove down to the pier, and took the boat trip to Catalina. And threw the gun overboard. Yes, that's right. It's at the bottom of the ocean. Nobody will ever find it. <laughs> When I saw Red come into the visiting room, she seemed to have grown smaller. Behind her, the police matron who brought her in stood and gazed like a cat at a remote distance. There was a glass wall between us, and Red's voice came to me through a phone.
5: Like my outfit?
3: How are they treating you? Do you need anything?
5: Could you send me the trades?
3: Oh, sure. They'll be lucky if Schreiber doesn't sue for false arrest before it's over.
5: Don't tell me you two hamburgers still think I'm innocent.
3: As the day is long.
5: There's never a Kleenex around when you want one.
3: Red, have you heard from your father?
5: Yes, this morning. He thinks I did it. He advises I plead insanity and throw myself in the mercy of the court. Said to be sure to talk to the analyst who treated me after I killed my sister. But he's not coming to see me. How's Leonard Ellis?
3: Leonard, I don't know.
5: The police tell me he's been hospitalized. They found him in some bar, told him about Heidi, and he began to get severe chest pains.
3: Poor guy. All right, I'll check into it. Red, did you notice anything out of the ordinary before you went into Ellis' apartment last night?
5: Just the door was open. Was that usual? Well, it was never open. They were all burglar freaks. They hear them every night. There are enough locks and chains and bolts to outfit a dungeon on every door.
3: Our time was up. The matron was approaching. I told Red I'd be back. She put her hand on the glass, palm flat, and I rested my palm on the other side against hers as though we were touching. I left the building. By the time I got back to the studio, I didn't think anything was worth too much. There was a strange secretary in my office took me a moment or two to remember that last night at the office, just before Jack and I had stepped out into the rain, Mary had told me she was flying out in the morning to Chicago to see her sick father. I smiled at the new secretary. She had the heat turned up and her coat over her shoulders, but none of it seemed to warm her in the least. I picked up all my messages from her desk, including one from in Research. It read, The threatening letter, the words were cut out of Star Eyes Comics, April 15, 1972 issue. Good man, Tibbet. I spent the next ten minutes on the phone. Good Samaritan Hospital to check on Leonard Ellis. Learned nothing, except that he was in intensive care. Hung up and got a call from Ames. Vixen? Yes?
8: I wanted to talk to your secretary, uh, Mary McGrath, but I got somebody else. Thought I had the wrong office. Uh, Where is Miss McGrath?
3: Uh, In Chicago. Her father's sick, didn't I tell you?
8: No, you gave me her address in Glendale, but there's no one there.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was pretty shook up last night. I've got the number right here. Just a minute. Uh, yeah, 427-3099. I don't remember the area code. I'll get it. Thanks. I spent the day at my desk going over all of the scripts that were ready to shoot. It was 5 o'clock when I got another call from Sergeant Ames.
8: We called the number you gave us in Chicago for your secretary, Miss McGrath. She wasn't there.
3: Well, her father's very ill. She might have been at the hospital.
8: Nope. Called a couple of her friends as well. No sign of her. So we went to the airline at L.A. here. She never got on the plane.
3: Hey, Mr. Blixen? I'm here. I'm trying to find an explanation. She was very close to her father. She told me he was dying. Passed away at noon, Chicago time.
8: Well, I'd better notify missing persons.
3: I hung up. And sat thinking about Mary and the two deaths that had already occurred. Mary? How could she be involved? Was I losing my sanity? Was there a straight line through Dan Gladstone, Heidi, Mary? Where would it end? And with whom? (laughs) Jack was parked in his usual place waiting for me, reading the late edition of the Times and looking at the legs of starlets as they passed the checkout point at the gate.
7: Hi, Mr. Blixen. (laughs) Hey, what do you hear from our girl?
3: I saw her this morning. She'll make it. Um, Let the traffic clear a little bit, Jack. I just want to sit here for a minute.
7: You know, my wife, Dolores, she's got it all paid. She says they're railroading Miss Redfern, and she says the kid's grandfather did it.
3: What's she based that on?
7: Well, for one thing, the paper said there were three or four locks on the front door, and all of them were open. And Dolores figures the kid was waiting for whoever lived there to come in. The paper said she was on the couch, so she didn't open the door herself. The locks were off, and the guy came right in.
3: Unless he picked the locks first.
7: Why, you, you can't pick a lock without making some kind of noise. Oh,
3: but it was raining. That might have covered it.
7: Hey, what's the matter? Don't you want the old man to be guilty? Well,
3: something like that. Besides, he left the studio at the same time we did last night, 6 30 or thereabouts. He couldn't have gotten to the apartment, killed the girl, and split before Red arrived. But when did she so about a quarter to seven.
7: Well, it'd be tight, but I think he could make it.
3: In 15 minutes?
7: I don't know. I have to run it myself.
3: Do it. Do it now. I want to go over there anyhow.
7: All right. You time it, but but wait till I get out of the lot. <laughs> hey, I feel like Mario Andratti. Now, who's going to pay the fine if the cops stop
3: me? They'd better not stop
7: you. I hope you're right.
3: We crossed Santa Monica, turned right onto a congested alley, left a narrow street, and east again toward Vine. There were no automatic signals on Jack's route. At the boulevard stops, he paused and nosed at once into honking traffic. Twelve minutes and twenty seconds later, we pulled to a stop in front of the fourplex.
7: Okay, how about that?
3: You're a professional driver, and you barely made it. Ellis was drunk. The streets were wet. No, I can't buy it. It's out of reason, all out of reason. Leonard Ellis was the only one in the whole house who couldn't have done it.
7: Except, of, of course, Miss uh, Miss Redfern, maybe?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true. You better not wait, Jack. I want to pick up something from the garage, and uh, no idea how long I'll be. I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, right. On the walk, Boom Boom, wearing shapeless coveralls and a pith helmet, was using a small hand hoe to replant one of the rain-shattered rose bushes.
11: Ah, Niamh Frederick. You see, Cherie, it is foolish to try to raise anything beautiful in this violent city. Sightseers can be such dreadful people. They drive by, they point, they take the picture. They remind me... The good times they are all gone now. I loathe that little girl, that ID. But she was part of the house, part of the fun. And now she's gone. Joanna's in jail. Poor Leonard is in the hospital. Bobby's left. Nothing is the same.
3: Bobby's left? Do you know where he's gone?
11: He called. You want to know about the funeral? He's living with uh, another boy in La Cognada.
3: I want to ask you a favor. I understand Heidi kept a number of magazines, comic books, in the garage.
11: Oh, too many. I I was going to call the trash man.
3: Well, before you do, I'd like to go through them, if I may.
11: Bon chance then, sherry.
3: As I walked along the root-buckle driveway, I could hear Phil practicing. He was home. I paused under the ground floor window to listen.
12: It's not bad, huh?
3: It was Boom Boom's husband, Fred, pushing through the screen's back door, coming down the warp steps with a glass of wine in each hand. He looked curiously clownish, in wide baggy pants, a gray undershirt, and loose carpet slippers. And that's how I pegged him, a quiet clown. Compliments to the house, Mr. Blixen. Thank you, Mr. Haywood. I didn't want either of you to go to any trouble.
12: It's Fred, and you're a guest. And guests are no trouble to Boom Boom. They're they're the breath of life. Drink it. She makes it. That's very good. Boom Boom says you want to look through the comic books in the garage, huh? Come on, I'll help you.
3: The garage was ramshackle and unfinished, built for the thinner, taller cars of the 20s. It wasn't true that the comic books were piled to the roof, but there must have literally been thousands stacked along both sidewalls in the rear, some loose, some tied in uneven bundles, some torn and old, some recent.
12: Which one you looking for?
3: Star Eyes, April 15th,
12: 1972. Star Eyes, Star Eyes.
3: We tackled it from opposite sides, restacking as we went. Halfway through the first pile, I thought I heard footsteps outside. It sounded like someone paused outside the garage near the heavy raised door, perhaps to watch and listen. Fred, engrossed in the search, hadn't noticed. I swallowed the last of the wine and I drifted toward the entrance. I looked casually down the drive and into the rear yard and along the porch. There was no one there. And the guitar practicing had ceased.
12: I'm up to march. April... 1st, 8th, April
3: 15th. Here it is. Good, good. Let me see it. Fred, you see these holes in the pages? Now, I say that Heidi cut the words out of this magazine for the threatening letter she sent to Red.
12: But the writer threatened to kill Dan Gladstone. I know Heidi was a weirdo, but she wouldn't have killed nobody.
3: She could drive. She could have been out of the house that night.
12: Mr. Blixen, if you tell the police all this... You know what they're going to think? Know what? Well, if Red figured out that Heidi killed her great love, and if she came out here and found the magazine and put two and two together like you just did, couldn't the police say that was enough motive for her to kill Heidi? Fred Hayworth wasn't a clown. I was.
3: There was no answer I could give him. I just walked away. At 4.30 in the morning, I gave up the idea of sleep and I stepped onto my balcony to wait for sunrise. At 8.30, I was in Walter Tibbetts' office in research, seated at the chrome desk under the cobwebs, comparing my mutilated copy of Star Eyes with the whole one that he had.
12: So, uh, what do you expect to accomplish with this thing now that I, uh, you know, run it down for you? I'm
3: not sure. I was playing detective. I hoped that I'd be able to help my casting director.
12: You mean know, that nice kid they arrested it? Uh, Joanna Redford. Yes. Helper. How?
3: Oh, that's too complicated. Just believe me when I say it didn't work.
12: Hey, wait a minute there. Uh, what was that? What was what? Let me see your copy.
3: W- Walter, what are you doing?
12: Pages 17 and 18 are missing from your copy.
3: And they weren't part of the original cutout?
12: No, no, because I... Uh, I showed you those parts. Peter, Laurie, and the Bug-Eyed Monsters. What does that mean? And on page 18 as well, uh, continuation of same story.
3: Oh, sure. They're a rock music group.
12: And stills of the real Peter Laurie on the back. You remember him?
3: Oh, yeah, beautiful. That was a gorgeous performance. Scared the hell out of me. It's been so long. Wasn't M a kidnapper?
12: No, he was a child molester, most despicable criminal in Berlin. Remember the police couldn't find him? Well, finally the uh, underworld took over. They captured him, uh, executed him, I think.
3: Yeah, yeah, they talk about the movie here, uh, in your copy.
12: Well, what's the connection? This wasn't part of the threatening letter that you showed me. No, unless there was another letter.
3: Wait a minute, wait a minute some other places cut out.
12: Let me see it. I'll, I'll compare them. Write this down. Go to the $300 cash each and every month for life. I will pay or... That's O-A-R.
3: O-A-R.
12: O-A-R. Police. That's it.
3: Uh... Well, no, wait, wait, that's plain enough. Pay $300 cash each and every month for life, or I will go to the police.
12: You want to know something? A person could get killed sending letters like that. A
3: person did. I walked back to my office in a daze. My substitute secretary hadn't come in yet, but my phone was ringing. Lickson here?
9: Ames.
8: I called your apartment. You left early.
3: What is it, Sergeant?
8: We found your secretary,
3: Mary McGrath. The bullet fired at close range had entered her left eye near the nose, shattered the back of the skull, and spent itself inches short of the kitchen drain board. The brackish odor of death permeated the small house from end to end. According to the deputy coroner, she had been dead for approximately 40 hours. Tomorrow at this
2: time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense Someone's Death. I'm Rod Serling, and this is the Zero Hour.
1: Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Charles Larson's Someone's Death was adapted for radio by Glenn Bagney and Paul Duball. George Kennedy is Nils Fredrick. Joyce Boulevant is Red. And Robert Reed is Schreiber. Featured in the cast are Jeanette Nolan as Boom Boom. Jesse White as Jack. Herbert Jefferson Jr. as Ames, Tyler McVeigh as Fred, and Dawes Butler as Tibbet. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... ...to The Zero Hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents. I'm
2: Rod Serling. You're listening to the Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Charles Larson's Inside Story of Television Murder Someone's Death. Starring George Kennedy Joyce Bulafant, and Robert Reed In Elliot Lewis's production of "The Zero Hour. As a producer of TV murder mysteries, Nils Frederick Blixen is cognizant of a formula. It goes something like this. A murder is committed and someone innocent accused. The viewer is introduced to several suspects and fed a steady diet of red herrings. One by one, the suspects are eliminated through lack of motive or a substantiated alibi. Finally, the real killer is exposed, and everyone lives happily ever after until next week. But Nils Frederick Blixen has found himself in the middle of a mystery he's been unable to predict, let alone solve. Three murders, a host of suspects, a jumble of clues, but no killer. If it were only a bad script, only make-believe. But it's not. It's all too terrifying and real. But somehow, from his working experience, Nils Frederick Blixen knows somewhere in his mind that the simple truth is right in front of him. The only question is, can he recognize it before it's too late? The conclusion of someone's death follows after this word.
3: Mary McGrath murdered victim number three. In the bedroom of her small home, the police found a partially packed red and black suitcase, a round-trip airplane ticket to Chicago, and ten $20 traveler's checks, but no murder weapon. By 1.30 in the afternoon, the authorities had finished their examination of the house and grounds, and the body had been removed to the morgue. Detectives continued to question residents along both sides of Willow Way, a steep, pretty street on the Glendale edge of Montrose, just off of Highway 2, the main route to La Cunada. When I met Ames at the morgue, he was fit to be tied. She was dead when my
8: men checked the place yesterday, but none of them bothered to look in the kitchen window. Gonna hold a few seminars on comprehensive investigation.
3: All right, Mr. Bruxen? Yes. Yes, that's Mary. This is senseless. This is absolutely senseless. My mind really fights this. I know she's dead. I just can't accept it. This was a woman who didn't have an enemy in the world. I'd like to get some air. better no yeah yeah thanks so. yeah. tell me sergeant had mary been sexually attacked or robbed no i don't understand
8: well she was shot with a 22 same gun that killed gladstone
3: what well then that clears red is that so why well she's in custody that's why oh
8: different fingers could pull the same trigger at different times couldn't they in any case, she's still being held on a double charge. It wasn't a twenty-two that killed Heidi. No,
9: it
3: wasn't. And that's got to be one of the weakest points of your case against her. Oh, really? Since when has an axe been a woman's weapon? Oh, since about Lizzie Borden. Oh, my God. Haven't you ever shaken hands with Red? I doubt if she could lift an axe much less
8: Look, Mr. Blixen, we don't know that an axe was used in the eldest case. It was an axe-like weapon. That could be pruning shears or a hatchet or a small hand hoe. Now, I'll be honest with you. Heidi Ellis died of shock and loss of blood. The wounds themselves weren't deep. A woman might easily have made them, even a weak woman. Incidentally, your uh, your attorney, Mr. Schreiber, is in the building. He said he'd drive you home if you needed a lift. Yes,
3: yes, call him, please. And, and thank you. Yeah. I could scarcely breathe. Hand hoe, hand hoe. Where had I seen a hand hoe recently? I was barely aware of getting into the car with Wade Schreiber. Homebound traffic had begun to clog the freeways. Wade wanted to take the surface streets. I said anything was okay with me, anything. You look beat, Nils. It's been one of those days. Listen, did you ever see Peter Laurie in M? What's Peter Laurie have to do with it? M was the story of a child molester. Well, Heidi was a child. You think somebody was trying to... Heidi told me that she'd seen Dan Gladstone about a week before his death. She'd left school in the middle of the afternoon, not feeling well. And Gladstone, she wouldn't tell me what he wanted or what he did. But it was clear from her attitude that something strange had happened. Well, Gladstone has a record, but uh, molesting children wasn't part of it. Well, there's always a first time. Now, if Gladstone did try something funny, what have we got? Well, we've got a new case, a motive for murder on Heidi's part
9: especially if Gladstone tried it a second time. Heidi may have thought first of blackmail and changed her mind. Yes, but who killed Heidi then?
3: Who would want to kill Mary? Where does her death fit in all this? I don't know. Wait. I'm lost. Red was innocent. I knew it. But there
9: were three people dead. What were we missing? Hello, this is Hugh Downs. Recently, I participated in a Ford LTD fuel economy run from Phoenix to Los Angeles, where the average for five cars was 18.8 miles per gallon with standard 351 V8 engines. The high was 20.3, and I added 19.7. My first reaction was surprise, because I think you'll agree the numbers sound a little high. So I'd like to stress that gas mileage depends on many factors. Things like total weight, maintenance, road and driving conditions. And you might not get the same results. But probably most important of all are your personal driving habits. How you behave when you drive. And one of the things we did in the test was to make a point of never exceeding 50 miles an hour. I think all of us who participated would agree that driving reasonably is a very modest price to pay for something else you can get from a Ford LTD. The good feeling of riding in a solid, well-made automobile. The Quiet Riding forward. The closer you look, the better we look. We'll return to our story
1: in a moment. Provide
4: so for their college. The safe and easy way.
7: It's sure with payroll savings. Yeah, join that plan today. To save, take stock in America by US savings. Funds. So, always remember
4: it's a proud way to save.
3: Ruth Ellis, aged 14 years, one month, and six days, was buried in Hollywood's Robindale Cemetery on Thursday the 7th of June at 11.15 in the morning. It had begun to drizzle shortly before nine, but the cemetery officials had prudently erected a canvas canopy over the small open grave during the night, and both the ground and the mourners remained dry. I recognized the pallbearers, Bobby Leeds and Rene Ortiz, solemn, still not speaking, Fred Hayworth in an ancient black suit and pearl gray cowboy hat. Preston Andrade, the only man beside Wade Schreiber who wept openly. And Phil Waters. Surprisingly, only two women were present. Boom Boom Hayworth looking like an ill gypsy. And a stout, pleasant-faced lady in a hooded raincoat who reminded me vaguely of Mary. As the young priest's comfortless voice droned on, I became aware that Wade Schreiber had left my side. I eased backward onto the wet grass and ascended the slope to join him.
11: Oh, how sweet of you to come, chérie. In fact, you're just the man we want to see. We need advice.
3: Of course, Bobo. Anything I can do.
11: You see, Phil lost his job at the drugstore. So, I thought, Sherry, with all the musicians this studio needs... Uh, perhaps you could put in a good
3: word, no? Oh. Hmm? Um, why don't you have him come out to the studio? I'll send him to Derek Kirk, the head of music.
11: Oh, fine. This afternoon, Phil can drive us. All right.
3: All right. This afternoon. Uh, say five o'clock?
11: We'll be there. Merci bien, Sherry.
3: Uh, wait... Who is that lady just getting into her car? The one who stood with you at the services? The
11: lady? Oh, that is Miss Tufelt Etta.
3: Is she a neighbor? I don't believe I've...
11: No, no, no. She's the nurse. The school nurse. Miss Etta Tufelt. Uh, Lovely. Au revoir, chérie. Au revoir.
3: It was past two by the time I got to the studio. To fulfill the obligation to fill in Boom Boom, I made a call to the music department and I set up the appointment. Then I just went out, and I walked a lot.
12: Uh, Mr. Blixen? Uh, Niels?
3: Oh, hello, Tibbet. Uh, Thanks again for your good work on those comic books.
12: Well, (laughs) I sure hope it helps you. (laughs) Well, say, you you produce mysteries. Surely you have an idea who done it. I mean, well, I mean, I, I don't mean to be frivolous. As a matter of fact, Tibbet, I have the oddest feeling I've known the answer all along, that someone told it to me. But I couldn't translate it. As though you uh, sort of peeked at the back of the book and then there was the solution, only you had to read the whole thing to be sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
3: Someone said something or did something and it was all wrong, but I can't remember the circumstances.
12: Well, perhaps
3: you're uh,
12: trying too hard. Probably. What were we just talking about, the, uh, the the funeral? Uh-huh. What does the word funeral suggest to you, Hillsides And, uh, hillsides? It was
3: as though a camera shutter had clicked in my mind There was the hill and the headstones And Schreiber under his wide black umbrella And down the hill, dry beneath the canvas canopy Were Boom Boom and Miss Tufeld and the priest Let's see Phil and Andrade Hayworth and Renee, And there was Bobby And as suddenly as that I had it as clearly as a subliminal flash held too long, certain and complete and shadowless, I knew the killer. Sickened, I closed my eyes and thought, no, my God, no. I didn't know whether I said goodbye to Tibbet or not. I raced back to my office, told the substitute secretary to get a hold of Wade Schreiber... and tell him to get right over. It was about Miss Redfern. And I wanted the phone number of a Miss Edda Tufeld, school nurse at Hollywood High. Then I got hold of a studio transportation man I'd known for years... and I had him drive me out Highway 2 through Glendale to La Cañada. After that, on the way back, I stopped at a phone booth on the road... called Sergeant Ames and told him what was up. At 5.40, when I got back to my office there was a message on the desk that Schreiber had received the call, and Miss Tufeld's phone number was there. Hello? Miss Tufeld, this is Nils Frederick Blixen. You probably don't know my name.
11: Oh, indeed I do, Mr. Blixen. You were at the cemetery today. Uh, Mrs. Hayward pointed you out to me.
3: Miss Toofeld, I need some information about Heidi Ellis' movements last May 15th. Now, that was a school day, a Tuesday. Heidi told me she'd reported sick to you and that you'd sent her home.
11: Tuesday, yes. Yes, uh, I remember I certainly did send her home.
3: At about what time, do you recall...
11: Um, yes, that would have been about one thirty.
3: I thanked her. I made one more phone call to a drugstore. I asked one more question and hung up. And then just sat there, idly moving a herd of ceramic hippos around my desk. Then I involuntarily got up, walked to the door and opened it. In my outer office, Boom and Fred, still in their funeral finery, were on the couch reading the trade papers while their nephew, Phil, stood braced sadly against the hall jam like an abandoned dress dummy. They had come by to report on Phil's job interview with the music department. I invited them in and scrounged up soft drinks without ice.
11: Monsieur, Cherie, you are fidgety. Why is this?
3: Miss Redfern's going to be released. She's innocent.
11: Oh, the police suspect someone else then? They do now. Of which murder?
3: Of all three. The same person committed all three.
11: And you know who it is?
3: I know. You see, the thing that threw everybody off was that Gladstone was killed first. That was a mistake. Heidi was the threat.
11: Sherry, the little girl.
3: Think back to the 15th of May. Heidi got sick, came home from school. Uh Nobody was home, right? Then Heidi said Dan Gladstone came by. But she didn't tell anyone about a third person who was at the house that afternoon. A child molester. (gasps) No. Gladstone was in the back somewhere, probably near the garage. He may have heard Heidi call out. In any event, he came around front and possibly saw what was going on. It's a sure thing the molester saw him and ran.
11: Heidi knew the man?
3: She knew him. And she knew how to make him bleed. She'd seen the effect of one anonymous letter on Red and Gladstone, so she decided to send another. She cut out an article about a fictional child molester called M and mailed it. When the man got the letter, he assumed Gladstone had sent it. It wasn't hard to get Gladstone up on the hill and kill him. Just leave a message with his landlady that Red wanted to meet him in their favorite spot, something like that. And then a gun, one shot, and M was safe. Except a day later, another anonymous letter arrived. And this one asked for $300 a month for life. And he knew it was Heidi he had to kill. He called her. He probably told her he wanted to discuss terms. She unlocked the door and she let him in.
11: Oh, but you kill her with an axe. Oh, no, he
3: didn't. He probably used a pair of pruning shears or a small handhole, like the one you were using in the roses, boom.
11: But... Dan Gladstone must have seen the other car when he goes up to Ruby Drive. Didn't he notice?
3: It was the kind of a car that no one ever suspects. Driven by someone everybody talks to and nobody notices. The scene in my outer office, except for Wade Schreiber thumbing through a magazine, might have been a replay of an earlier scene. There were detectives Ames and Griswold talking by the files. And there was the sunset cab driver on the couch, flipping his cap absently between his knees.
7: Hi, Mr. Blixen. (laughs) Take your time. I'm a
3: little early. Wait, if the police withdraw their charges against Red tonight, can she be released immediately? It's in the works, Mr. Blixen. You found the proof then, Sergeant? One of my men just phoned. Found the bloody pants, the
8: shirt, and the gun.
7: (laughs) The gun? You found the gun that killed Gladstone?
8: Yep, and Mary McGrath. Oh? Uh, Where? In your garage. And firestone tires on your cab.
7: Hey, hey, what is this, a joke? All Sunset cabs use firestones.
8: You're under arrest, Mr. Bartholomew. You have the right to remain silent and the right to consult an attorney.
3: If you...
7: Hey, wait a minute. What is this, uh, some kind of gag? Tell him it's a gag, Mr. Blixen. It's no gag, Jack.
3: I drove out to Glendale this afternoon up Highway 2 to Montrose. And I found the Japanese nursery you used to work in. The owner told me you went to jail for a year for child molesting. That's why you lost your job there. On Tuesday, May 15th, you answered a call for a cab at Hollywood High, placed by the school nurse. It's on the record. You drove Heidi Ellis home, you walked her to the house, and you attacked her. The next time you saw Heidi, you killed her, last Monday at around 6 o'clock. They'll probably find the shears or whatever you use stuck
7: away in your gardening equipment. Six o'clock. Mr. Blixen, you're my witness. I was here at six to pick you up. No. You got to the studio at 6.15, Jack. Baloney! I got here at six. 6.15.
3: At six o'clock, it hadn't started raining yet.
7: I, I know it. And that's why I'm sure I'm in the clear.
3: Remember when the cat ran under your car? That's what really started unwinding this thing for me. I went to a funeral this morning, and a canopy over the grave had kept the ground dry. Your cab should have kept your parking place dry, but it was wet. You got there after the rain had started, after 6.15. You killed Dan Gladstone when you thought he was blackmailing you about the attack on Heidi. Then you had to kill Heidi when you discovered it was she, not Dan, who had sent the letter. And to cover it all up, you had to kill Mary McGrath. Well, it was all put together. I was in a bar with Schreiber, having a much-needed double on the rocks. I could see him in the phone booth, talking fast and furious. And when he hung up,
9: there was a smile on his face. Well, you're reinstated with a network. Uh, incidentally, I didn't quite get the cabbie's
3: explanation about why he killed Mary McGrath. Well, it's very simple, now that I understand it. He had just killed Heidi, and he needed an alibi, so he enlisted Mary's help. He told her Heidi was in the cab, waiting, some kind of surprise for her grandfather. And it would help if Mary would tell Alice she just phoned when he came into the office. He knew he'd have to kill Mary later. The problem was, when Ellis told Mary to call Heidi back, Mary played that pretty well, keeping him from talking. She made one mistake. I should have caught it then. She tapped the receiver bar several times, supposedly to attract Heidi's attention. And that's a mistake? You do that, and if you place the call, at least here in Southern California, you cut the connection as surely as if you'd severed the line. That was his alibi. I should have recognized it a long time back. Joanna Redfern was released from custody the 8th of June. She was back to work three days later. The studio calmed down, and so did I, except for one thing. When Red came sweeping into my office, as usual, she knocked over an ashtray and she bumped her knee on the sofa. She threw her arms around my neck. She kissed me on the forehead, on the nose, on the mouth, and on both eyes.
5: Oh, good grief, I love you. Did I ever tell you that?
3: Will you marry me, Red? No. We can go. No. Who is it, then? Wait. Wait.
5: I love Wade, but it's certainly not Wade. I'm not going to marry anybody. You can't
3: love both of us and not marry anybody. That's absolutely ridiculous.
5: Why? I don't see why I can't love a thousand people. I do. I will. I'm still young. Bye, darling, and thanks for saving my life.
3: A kiss on my forehead, and she swept out of the room. Still as inaccessible as an alpine flower. I sat down and I took all the little ceramic hippos on my desk and arranged them into a broken heart. (laughs) But I was smiling with love at my age.
1: You are listening to Mutual's presentation of The Zero Hour.
2: That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour. Charles Larson's Someone's Death. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.
9: Today's episode brought to you in part by Ford Motor Company, Quaker State Motor Oil, and V8 Juice. This is The Zero Hour on Mutual Radio.
1: And once
2: again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.
9: This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.